We have an epic two-hour episode for you this week, and it's one I've been eager to do since I started podcasting. The guest is none other than poet, critic, editor, and scholar, John Yao. We've invited the Hyperallergic Weekend editor and one of the must-read critics in contemporary art, if you ask me, to talk about his early life and what led him to write about art for over four decades in New York. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the host of the Hyperallergic podcast. The first time I met John Yao was as my editor at the Brooklyn Rail. I'd been writing for that publication for years when John showed up to take over the reins as art editor. What I've learned about John is that his critical vision easily blends the literary and visual worlds by cutting through hierarchies and academic categories, not to mention jargon, with the ease of a butter knife. He's a cultural polyglot who writes about his love for art and ideas through his poetry, reviews, and many collaborations he's done over the years with fellow writers and artists. He's also the publisher of Black Square, which has an impressive roster of poetry books that you'll want to check out. Art for John is lived. And when you listen to the interview, I think you'll get a sense of why. I moved to New York in 1974 to be with my girlfriend, and we lived in Brooklyn. We lived first in Manhattan, then we moved to Brooklyn because we saw an ad in the Village Voices said, do you want to live like Henry James? And being <laughs> foolish That's people great. that we were, we went to look at this apartment uh, near Pratt. Uh-huh. I forget the, what the neighborhood's called. And we had this found this great top of a brownstone. The man who owned it had been uh, worked for Edwin Reischauer in Japan. Oh, he had decorated the whole house with amazing furniture, and we what? did live like Henry James. Except <laughs> nobody would visit us. They would come to this neighborhood once and be so distraught over possibly being robbed or shot on the way to their our house or back that they visited once and never came back. But I never felt threatened there, and uh, I felt perfectly comfortable there. I got used to stores with double plastic windows so that you right. couldn't stick a gun in their face. But I thought, okay, this is the way life is. I'll accept it. Was it one of those places where the bodegas had, like, Lazy Susans at night? Yes. Where you had to, like, deal? Yeah, I, I Seasons and, yeah, uh, that's right. There was a project nearby that you could, it was dangerous. But then later, we moved to Chinatown and lived across the street from a movie theater where at least once a month, in the middle of the night, you would hear someone being shot in the bathroom. Wow. So it was more dangerous. Not dangerous. You just felt the violence closer. Right. You know, and, and I remember waking up one night, my girlfriend saying, what was that? And I said, oh, another kid's been shot in the bathroom. Wow. And then we moved from there. Actually, ended up going to different places. But So where'd you come from to New York? Boston. Boston. And so was it culture shock? It was great. <laughs> That's all I can say. I mean, I I grew up in Boston, went to Bard College, moved back to Boston. I felt the poetry scene and the art scene in Boston was very kind of conservative. Mm-hmm. I would see Robert Lowell walking across Harvard Yard. He would be coming from this library that I'd be on my way to that's a poetry reading room. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I finally I went to the Museum of Fine Arts, and the big show there was it, and it was a big thing for Boston. It was the Jules Olitsky retrospective. Right. And I thought, well, these are really beautiful, but there's got to be more going on, and I'm not going <laughs> to see it in Boston. Right. So then I decided I have to move to New York. I just read about these shows that I never get to see, and I literally moved to New York for that reason. And then. My girlfriend and I, our whole routine every weekend was to start in the 80s and go to galleries and come all the way back down to Soho every wow. Saturday. Every Saturday? Yeah. So how many galleries were there in New York at that time, roughly? There or? were a lot. I mean, there's like Robert Elkin. There were all these galleries along Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue, down to 57th Street. Then you walked across and looked at the galleries there. Then you hopped on the subway. And went to Soho. You, I felt like there were a lot of galleries, but they were clustered more or less in three areas, and you could do it in a day. Now you can't. Right. You so there were can't. probably, what, a few dozen, you would say? No, I'd say there were 75 or 80. Oh, wow, that's quite a bit. Yeah, small ones, Got big it. ones. At that point, there were a lot of middle-range galleries. Mm -hmm. That's what they'd be thought of as now, but right. we would think they were big because right. they had a room and <laughs> so who are the juggernauts in the room at that time? Like who are the galleries that were like? Well, every we always ended oxygen. up at four twenty where there was Sonnabend and Costelli. That Got was it. and Paula Cooper. Those are the three that you felt like were really looking at everybody, and that's where you'd want to go to. Right. And then Mary Boone right. in the eighties, but then there were little gal. You know, like those kinds shared a gallery with Ed Thorpe. And possibly a third gallery. I think it was on Spring Street on the second floor. It's where I saw a Christine Ramberg show. That was in the 70s. So, mm -hmm. so it's like there were there's still things working themselves out. Um, Susan Caldwell was a gallery that everybody went to. O.K. Harris. Then Holly Solomon opened up downtown. Mm -hmm. Everybody went there. So there are quite a lot of galleries that everybody went to mm. and um, had arguments about, as they would say. So now you're a, you're a poet, you right. know, and you are a poet, of course. You know, what was it about art that interested you? I mean, was that something that was always sort of part of your the air you were breathing? Or how did that come about? Uh, when I was a child, my best friend was Chinese, Douglas Wei, and his father was a abstract painter, lived in Boston, showed on, I forget the street now, Newbury Street, which is where all the galleries right. are in Boston, and talked to me at the age of six, seven, and eight about Franz Klein, Robert Motherwell, stealing from the Chinese. Wow. He had a very different view of art history than <laughs> other people. He liked the Chinese painter Zhao Qi, and he painted in his living room, or wow. his dining room, of this, you know, house you know, like a small apartment in Beacon Hill. And so I grew up watching a man paint, hanging out with him, him and his. And then my mother always took me to the Museum of Fine Arts every weekend and put me in children's classes. We, I kind of got, I know the collection in that, yeah, in that museum fairly well. Mm -hmm. I have certain paintings that stick out in my mind as early experiences. Favorite? Favorite ones? Well, like, my which favorite are the ones? early one is, um, which is probably politically incorrect to say, 
is Monet's painting of his wife wearing a Japanese kimono. Right. There was a big protest about this. But for me, as an Asian kid, seeing something Asian in the western part of the museum, I was like, and my parents were, uh, my father's half English and half Chinese. I understood right away this kind of biracialness of the painting. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this is great. I love it. You know, and I I was told it was the biggest portrait that he ever did, so I thought it must have meant a lot for him to have done it. And I was just kind of fascinated by the painting. And how about now, when you look at that painting? Has your perception of it changed? No, actually, almost every time I go back to Boston, I go to the museum and look at that painting. Partly from just the memories of my childhood, there's another beautiful painting by Renoir, in that room of a couple dancing. Mm-hmm. And I remember that painting. I don't know why I remember that painting, except when I ever I see it, it's you can't see the man's face, but you see the woman's face. So there's certain paintings I go back to look at. There's a Roger van der Weyden Annunciation where mm-hmm. Mary's about to be, has been told by the angel. I always go see that painting. There's a beautiful Gauguin woodcut. It's the wood itself. I go mm-hmm. see that. And then I toddle off and look at other stuff. But those wow. are the kind of landmark children's memory, child's memory. Totally, the touchstones. Yeah, so I kind of want to see them. So literally, you know, if I go back and I go to the museum, I go see those works. So is it right to assume that with your friend's father's experience, like you always saw artists as living people? Yeah, absolutely. Which I, I think comes through in your writing. Right. So I just want to sort of, you know, mark that a little bit because I think that's really interesting. So now you're in New York. You're starting to look at art every Saturday. You're going to all the galleries. First impressions? Like, you know, the Tom Wolf School was always like, you know, the emperor has no clothes. You know, others were like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing ever. You know, the ultimate. What was a, a younger John Yao thinking? I was just curious. I had never seen stuff like this. I mean, I, I kind of had a limited view, and I just looked at everything. At one point, I kept a notebook, and I made a little drawing of every of one work in every show and wrote the name down. I had no sense other than looking. My girlfriend, Ray, was an art or was studying arts at Hunter. Mm-hmm. So she knew Ralph Humphreys, and he would say, oh, you should go see this show, this show, and this show, and we would always... Who's Ralph Humphreys? Oh, he's a painter, a wonderful painter who uh, taught for a long time at at, um, Hunter, and he had changed his work, I think, a little bit later, and he kind of got forgotten for a long time. And he was important, I think, to Bryce Martin and a few other people. Anyway, I really liked what he suggested and I mean he told her Ray about Elizabeth Mary go see the Elizabeth Mary show but it also talked to her about Walt Disney so there's this he was very kind of democratic so I think that was really important to us and um, uh, Richard Van Buren I remember there was a concert a dance concert it was in the evening at Paula Cooper and I went to it and I was supposed to be watching the dance, but I think I only looked at the Richard Van Buren's on the wall because he later told me that there were people dancing naked in the dance. And I was like, well, God, I don't remember that. (laughs) So I was really just like, 
and then I'd go see work that I literally like. I remember seeing a Robert Grosvenor show and literally standing there and going, "Huh, right?" You know, and but to me, going "Huh" was not a bad thing. So because, all right, I've come from Boston, and the only poets I had heard read were in Boston, were like Denise Levertov, Galway Cannell, Robert Lowell. Very kind of straightforward. Some point in New York in 1975, I ended up in a bar. I think it was called. It was owned by the, a poet named Paul Pines, and it might have. It was called something. I forget. Anyway, and it's Jackson McClough, and there's about eight other people that I don't know. They're in the audience. I mean, it's a big audience, but they stand up and all start reading words off a list. And it's like, huh? Again, you know, so I learned really quickly, like, if I did know what was going on, not to leave the room. Huh. And I've kind of stuck with that ever since. Like, there's things where you just don't know what's going on, and it's like, I don't feel it's like my fault. It's like, mm. it is my, it's my responsibility. Even if in the end I end up going, no, I don't like it. Right. I don't want to dismiss it. I want to kind of figure it out so where'd that come from like where'd that because you know you i feel like you kind of almost have to be taught or it has to be an instinct or something like i don't think that's the first reaction of most people well or is it i don't know do you think it is i mean if you're taking poetry classes and you're reading you know posts that you don't understand right like charles olson i didn't get or robert duncan or louis Zukowski, and Suddenly you have to read it word by word and line by line, and you you don't go, eh, you just right. go right in and right. think. Right. And I feel like that kind of learning how to close read works, or John Milton, like, you know, someone breaking down Milton every line, showing you how he constructs three levels of mm -hmm. metaphor and what that means. I think that I brought that to hmm. looking at art, like... And did you feel like the New York contemporary art scene was welcoming? I mean, was it, did it care? Like, you know, at least the image of, I mean, there are actually two images, I feel like, of the 70s art world in New York. One is the sort of like, we're all in it together and camaraderie. And then it's the other one that's sort of like a little more rarefied and like smug. I think they were both there. Okay. I mean, yeah. I remember saying to someone, reading uh, an essay on James Joyce was easier than reading art form. I mean, I was just like, huh? You know, what are they talking about? And so then I kind of got, I guess, sort of didn't like certain kinds of terminology. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of rejected that. And then when I first wrote for Art in America, mm -hmm. Betsy Baker's instruction to me was, you're writing for the dentist in Ohio who will never see the show. And I've never forgotten that. Right. I think, okay. Right. You know, you don't have to show off. You just have to communicate something. I actually have my grad students reading James Agee's film reviews, hmm. many of which were unsigned. Oh, wow. And, you f and they were written in the 40s. And you, I think it's so brilliant what he's doing. I mean, he's talking wow. about was Ivan the Terrible, which is like very still the scenes. He yep. says, it gets interesting. It's like when a corpse twitches or when a oh, corpse wow. moves and you suddenly see the film, right? So you think, how do you write in a way 
that people see. So is this Ivan's childhood or is this Ivan the Terrible? Which one? Ivan, it's which the one? second one. Second one. It's okay. after Stalin's really oh, annoyed gotcha. with him. And gotcha. actually he never, he works on the third, but Stalin basically nixed it. He hated the film. Gotcha. You know? Gotcha. Gotcha. So now how did you start writing reviews? Like uh -oh. what, or did you? I mean, what was that uh -oh. process like? So I studied with John Ashbery at Brooklyn College. Okay. And how was that like? It was great. So my first class with John, and I had, the year before I studied with him, I had spent the entire summer in the New York Public Library reading every review by a poet I could find on microfiche. Frank O'Hare, James Schuyler, Carter Radcliffe, mm -hmm. Peter Sheldahl, John Ashbery, mm -hmm. and he wrote for the Herald Tribune. And I just went through every one. You might say I was stalking them all, <laughs> and I did. And I had started to meet some of them, but I was a little bit shy. Vito Conchi likes stalking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just about. And then, um, so then John reads at Columbia. Mm -hmm. I go to the reading. I do something I've never had never done. I brought a shopping bag of every book of his I had, like twelve, wow. and had him sign them. <laughs> and I was so nervous that he spelt my name wrong, and I didn't correct him. So I used to, the first, like, five is Y-A-O. <laughs> and then he clearly, at one point, we're at the elevator, and we're both going to go down together, and it was clear he was going to talk to me, and I freaked out and went back into the room. Wow. So then... But during the reading, he said, I'm teaching at Brooklyn College. And I thought he was still working for Art News. I wasn't yep. kind of up on it. And I applied, thinking everybody in America is applying to study with this guy. He would later tell me he had to take everybody who applied. <laughs> so there's a kind of misperception on my part. And, uh, and he hadn't won any awards. Well, that's kind of a beautiful metaphor for the art world and literary worlds, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like people walk in the room and you think, oh, my God, <laughs> right. gods have come down from the heavens. <laughs> and everyone right. else is like, get out of my way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then uh, I applied. And then I re remember he called me. And my girlfriend said, oh, John Ashby's on the phone. And I said, oh, quit fucking with me. <laughs> and it was him. And he said, wow. I'd like you to come to Brooklyn College. I said, I'm in. You know, I went. So at some point, we both lived in Manhattan. We'd mm -hmm. take the same subway home. And at some point, I said, oh, I'm really, this is after we become friendlier. And so I really like to learn how to write art reviews. Would you talk to me about it someday? And he said, no. I was like, oh, okay. And then literally waits like 10 seconds, and we're sitting on the subway. He says, I think you should write something and send it to Art America. Send it to Betsy Baker. And I thought, oh, he's being nice. He's blowing me off, right? Mm -hmm. Next week, we're back in the subway. So have you sent anything to Betsy Baker yet? Uh, no. Well, I think you should. Here's the address. So trepidation, I write something, and I send it to her, and I don't hear from her for a year. It's clear whatever I sent her was terrible right. and unsolicited. And no. what was it what was it about? Do you it remember? It was about Carl Andre. Actually. No way. Yeah, I okay. thought that would be the easiest thing to okay. write about, but somehow I probably <laughs> blew it anyway. <laughs> 
there's a bunch of lead squares on the floor. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and, um, a year later, she calls me up. My guess is that John bugged her. Mm, got and it. And she finally s- says, okay. And so what did you write about that? First review was on Ellen Cody. He was a painter who taught at Bard, whose work mm-hmm. I knew. And I remember someone saying to me, I remember John saying to me, you're only writing a review, John. You're not trying to solve the problems of the world. Right. So that was the first comment, smart. And the second comment was by someone who went to Bard with me and knew Alan's work. He said, it's like you locked yourself in a closet and turned yourself into an ant and walked across the surface of the painting over and over again. Because I didn't know what to say, so I described mm-hmm. it so minutely. Right. So two things, like don't be trying to be too big and don't, Try and be too small, right? Right, right, right. And then um, I, I think Betsy did, understandably, didn't trust me because I didn't really know anything. So she kind of gave me all the people that no one else wanted to write about. Oh wow! And I kind of took that as an opportunity to say to myself, "Well, I'm going to learn about art by walking around, looking at everything, including all these people that no one else wants to write about." You still kind of do that. You're writing about people that other people have been overlooking for a very long time. Right. And I just learned a lot by doing that. And and I really got to like it, Mm -hmm. you know. And then at a certain point, I decided I would write for Arts Magazine, which if you know Arts Magazine, when Richard Martin ran it, he never edited anything. So I figured you had to really write well, like, Oh, really? It was that what it was known for? He yeah, just he, never, gonna, yeah. he just took it. Yeah. He'd call you up in the middle of the night, like 1 o'clock in the morning. He <laughs> Really? Yeah. He was this really strange man. <laughs> I mean, I liked him a lot. And he would say, I'll take it. And we had a phone relationship. I think I've never met him or I met him only once. Wow. And then I, at a certain later point, I heard that Ingrid Cici had taken over Art Forum, and I met Amy Baker somewhere and talked to her. She said, you should apply, and then I met Ingrid. Everyone said, oh, Ingrid won't hire you. She's got millions of people bugging her, but I wrote to her. She wrote back. This is before cell phones, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. white people. Right. I wrote her notes. She wrote back. We met, and she said, I know you know how to describe work because you worked for Art in America for X amount of years. Uh, you don't have to describe anything for art form. You just have to make judgments. So I was like, uh, okay. But then she hired me to be a reviewer. And that's where she got the first people I wrote about were Hiroshi Sugimoto. Oh, wow. And, In the 80s? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I got to know him quite well. He owned a little antique shop on West Broadway, sold high-end beautiful Japanese antiques. I naively Amazing. thought they cost $100 and looked at me and laughed at me. I mean, what did I know? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I love that. I and love that. I wrote about uh, David True. I wrote about Eric Fischel, Robert Bermelin, and Ed Paschke. Eric was not happy with it because <laughs> I should have put him with Julian and David Sally, and I didn't put him with the right people. Right, I right. knew. I knew right away I was just going to go my own way and it was not going to work out at some level, if you know what I mean. Totally. You know. Um, so what was it like in New York at that period? Like, you know, I mean, 
in terms of the art world, it seems, at least from the stuff I've looked at and, and you know, read and talked to, it was a pretty, what, boisterous scene? I mean, how would you really characterize it? It was really boisterous. It was very calm in the 70s, and there's kind of a blip with uh, pattern and decoration, mm-hmm. and, and, and certain positions were taken. And then with the neo-expressionist, it was like this kind of circus. Right. You know, Julian having three shows. I remember, I think it was Roberta Smith said, oh, he's moving so fast we can't keep up with him. I mean, things you just go, as a... As a In retrospect, it seems quaint. Yeah. yeah. As a poet, reader of literature, various other things, it's the kind of remark a reviewer should never make that we can't keep up with. Right, You right, know, that right. the reviewer's ego has to be like, oh, I can keep up. I know what's going on. Or film film reviewer, right? Right, you exactly. Know. So there was a kind of sense. And then there's a seem to be a lot of money suddenly. Yeah. Flow, and I think is that it, when the big injection of money came in? Because neo-expressionists seem to be super uh, popular with the moneyed crowd. Is that yeah, true? Yeah. I yeah. think that's fairly true. I think yeah. that's accurate. And then how about like at that time, graffiti was starting to become a thing. Was that on your radar or were you seeing that or was that? I remember the taking gallery? subways and seeing Keith Herring drawing in the, in the subway station. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'd And no just, one was stopping him, I'm guessing. No. No one and cared. And then you'd see Basquiat, Samo yeah. all over the place and various other... How about Jenny Holzer's posters? Yeah, they I mean, were that was, yeah, and that was exciting. It was like right. you felt like the art had moved out of the galleries in some way into the streets. You also felt like there's a kind of political discontent. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, this is also Reagan gets elected, yeah, absolutely. you know. Girl, totally. And then there's ACT UP. There's the thing about AIDS. I mean, this, you felt like there was a kind of, Direct and then Kim Jones. I don't know if you know Kim Jones. He's a Viet, was a Vietnam vet. He was known then as the Mud Man, and he oh, would be yeah. standing on the corner of Spring right. and West Broadway, right. covered in sticks, nude, basically in mud. I mean, there's like things you encountered. You'd just go, oh. And I would never have seen that in Boston. And, to me, <laughs> and I think it probably was probably still won't. Yeah, <laughs> it's really interesting. And you know, and then the poetry world was going through the thing with language poets and that. Right. So you felt like a lot was going on. And for me, it was trying to figure out not where I belonged because I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere, but how to walk through it. Hmm. How to navigate it. How to navigate it. So. I want to ask you about one aspect of the art world. You just brought up something that I've been thinking a lot about in recently, which is the fact that everyone in the art world feels like they're an outsider. I feel like there's an aspect of, I don't know why, but I feel like even when I talk to curators, they always feel like somehow they're a little bit on the outside. Even when people who I think are the most insiders in the world, I mean, I bet you if we asked Larry Gagosian, he'd probably be like, oh yeah, I'm an outsider. I'm unlike everyone else. Why do you think that happens? Because like, there's no center. In the 80s, there was a kind of center. Really? It, yeah, it was Leo Castelli, Mary Boone, part of a kind of, uh, part of the neo-expressionist group. You were either a painter or you were not a painter. Mm-hmm. You know, you were against painting. Uh, so there were like fairly clear divisions. Mm. Even geography-wise? Uh, 
not geographically, but oh. gallery-wise. And, and so that if you, I mean, there's a group of painters, Thornton, Willis, Stuart Hitch, and um, a number of other painters. I remember ending up at a party at somebody's loft, mm -hmm. and they were all abstract painters working with figure ground. And, like, they acted like no one else in the world existed. And it was really interesting to be there. Like, I didn't, I was, like, in my 20s. I didn't know what they were talking I mean, I knew what they were talking about. Then there was the figurative alliance, which would be mm -hmm. meaning. And you'd go hear people that you didn't even know were still alive talking about painting the figure. And it was like no one else existed. Mm -hmm. And that was so interesting. And I would just end up going to these places. I don't know how I knew about them. I'd find out or end up. Now it's a little more mushy, and right. no, and there is no center. Whereas there then, isn't. whereas at that point, there were these groups that feel like felt like they wanted to be the center, but they knew that the center was this Castelli, and they were making money, and they were, they were all pissed <laughs> off, you know. And I was like, to me, it was like I didn't, you know, I didn't. I think if you're a poet and you take the money seriously, you're sunk. Right. You have to compartmentalize your life. You have to live in two worlds and accept that they overlap, they touch each other, but they're not the same. Not the same. Got yeah. it. So now let's just rewind a little bit, because in the 70s, too, you were also part of the sort of emerging Asian-American consciousness that was going on. Right. Which I think is only now people like Ryan Wong is actually doing the research and right. like really documenting what's going on. Now... Tell me about that a little bit. So like, I yeah. lived in Chinatown, and there's a man named Bob Lee. He started a group that showed art. And then I also taught at a certain point in the YMHA, a creative writing class. And a guy there, Curtis, I believe his name was, started an Asian American writers workshop in Chinatown. Mm -hmm. Yep. At the same time. Is that the basement workshop? Was yeah, that, that was the yeah. basement. And then there was a group in the West Coast, Frank Chin, and, who did IE. Mm -hmm. So there was a kind of coming of consciousness starting in the mid-70s, early 70s, about being an Asian American. It's, mm -hmm. And partly the West Coast group was influenced by the black arts movement. Right. So I really felt like I was... Part of it, but not part of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the IE, I remember I sent poems to them, and they sent it back and just said, you're an uptight East Coast asshole. Really? Yeah, blam, that was it. <laughs> okay. <you know. laughs> um, so, Thanks for the review, yeah, right? <laughs> and, and you're just trying to figure, and I was trying to figure out, because in New York, that kind of racial consciousness was really off the radar. Really? You know, I mean, the art world wouldn't didn't care about it. They were just coming to care about a few things, but that was not one of them. Right. And I just really had to figure out how to do what I did. So I did work with Bob Lee. I tried to see who's an Asian artist out there. And, and who were they? Was there's this a, a lot, but yeah. there weren't many. David Diao. I mean, so right. this is how nutty it was in, in New York in the 70s and 80s. I can't tell you how many times I was standing somewhere and someone called me David. Really? Yeah. You're kidding. No. And, and did he get John too? Suddenly, 
it would dawn on them. And I remember standing in Finelli's with David, and he and I, he jokingly said to me, there should only be one Asian in the art world, and it should be me. But he's being ironic because he right, knew right, what the right, story right. was, yeah, yeah, right? Exactly, exactly. So, so did he get John too? I don't think I never asked him. Oh, okay. But he definitely was like, I got David. Oh, I mean, Leo Castelli once walked out of the gallery and said, "Hi, David," and then I could see him. His like face changed. Like, oh, <laughs> that's one of the guys that reviews my artists. You know? <laughs> wow. So that's how few Asians, Asian Americans, there were in the art world. Yeah. Wow. So now, how did that consciousness sort of form in the mid-70s? Like, also in New York, was there a response to, like, some of the Puerto Rican consciousness that was kind of coming up, the black consciousness? I mean, did it feel like I'm reflecting some of that energy, or was it coming from a different place? I think it was coming from that, what you just said, and a different place. There was also the Vietnam War. Right. So there was a kind of awareness of what it is, how Asians are being seen. Right, and the uh, the active othering every day right. in the media. Right. And so now, what are some of the objectives? And what do you think that sort of burgeoning consciousness accomplished in the 70s? I don't think it ever gained enough steam. Hmm. I don't know. That's how I feel. I don't, I mean... Someone's going to calm me up and disagree <laughs> with that. I still know. Well, it's your perspective. I mean, it's like it's. it's yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like what's happened in the art world was not totally dissimilar from the rest of America. Is they're really only conscious of two races, right? Which is super common. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, last, uh, just to give you an example, last summer I taught a class at Chautauqua, and I think probably a third of my class was Asian, of Asian descent. And I asked everyone in the class, because I, we were reading Ornamentalism, which was a book about Asian, Asiatic femininity. Right, right. And nobody in the class had ever read anything that was not about whiteness or blackness. Right. And that was 2019. Right. So I think you know, the other thing that affected me to go back to my childhood is in 64, 65, 66, I become aware of New Directions Press, and they always have this black cover. And I discover Yukio Mishima, oh, wow. Yasunari Kawabata, and I realize that there's Asian writers, and I kind of look for Asian writers kind of religiously at that point while I'm in high school. And, you know, come across Tales of the Genji, you know, like, right. oh, there's so much going right. on. And then you discover all the haiku and Ezra Pound. I mean, there's complications because Ezra Pound turns out to be a raging anti-Semitic creep. But at the same time, he makes these beautiful things. And I remember just feeling deeply conflicted by this, but saying, oh, I like him, but he's a jerk, you know. <laughs> And that plays out in various ways. I've criticized somebody about that once, and they were—they said they were more Asian than I was, and they were not Asian, <laughs> believe me. So, identity, oh, the politics and of I think, identity. I, I think identity also was a big thing because my father was half mm -hmm. Chinese and half English, mm -hmm. and the other big thing about my childhood is my father was obsessed with Native American history. Interesting. So the first book he gave me that I remember was Marie Sandoz's biography of Crazy Horse. Oh, wow. I'm like eight. 
So where do you think that came from for him? I think it was his own issues with identity. Am I Chinese? Am I English? Where do I belong? An erasure. An erasure, right? So for him, Native Americans came across the Bering Straits into America, and he wanted to trace his lineage in some imaginative way all the way back to, without ever saying it, but now years later at the... That's why he was obsessed. And he would say things to me. Imagine you're eight years old, and he's saying, in Boston, none of these people are American. The only American is an Indian. Wow. We're all just foreigners here, no matter what anyone says to you. And then would say things like, whatever they teach you in history class, they're wrong. They're lying. That just blew my mind. That Isn't must it, have been a, at eight years old. You yeah, should, yeah. Would have been like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> and so he would read. Uh, he would go to the Boston Public Library and get firsthand accounts of battles and read them to me. And his whole thing was about how the Native Americans had this thing that the West destroyed. Mm-hmm. You know, and he was very adamant about it. And that I think. Whatever else I had as a relationship with my father, that left a deep, deep impression on me. Where'd your dad grow up? He grew up in uh, uh, Shanghai. He was born in Mm -hmm. New York, which is why I was able to be born here, because he was able to come here after the war. Mm -hmm. So he grew up in Shanghai, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where he met my mother. And then they came here. So your mother's from Shanghai as well? Yeah. So they came here in 1949. My mother left on the last boat out of Shanghai. Wow. And wow. I just met my cousin for the first time two years ago. Amazing. What was that like? It's pretty amazing. It's strange. We He doesn't speak English, and I don't speak Chinese, but we did have someone between us. He was very nice to my daughter, mm-hmm. who went to China and stayed in a hotel, and he took her around and showed her all the family. So my mother grew up in a very high-class Chinese family, who's, and they're important to the founding of the Chinese Republic. Mm. There's a museum in Nanshun outside of Shanghai that has my name in it. No way. Because <laughs> wow. it traces these two branches of this family back and forward, and I'm just entered as Johnny. <laughs> wow. I have to go and correct it. <laughs> so your dad seemed pretty enlightened. Yeah, in some way he was. So was he a writer? What was he? He was like, a bookkeeper. Was he? He'd never finished yeah. college. But he was like fascinated with all these like lineages and histories and like, I mean, finding his own sort of place. Right. You know? So, and, yeah, he came, his father came from a fairly distinguished family in China that actually worked as import-export part of the family in New York City. His mother was, uh, well, depends on who's telling the story. (laughs) His mother was named Ivy Hillier and grew up in Liverpool. And according to my mother, who obviously didn't like her, was lower class. Gotcha. And a social climber. When I asked my father about the marriage, his comment was pretty blunt. He said, I don't think there are that many Englishmen left after the war. Right. So that's why she married. So who knows, right? Gotcha. Totally. And, and she was, I met her. She's the only relative I met. So imagine I'm meeting my only relative, grandparent. It's got blue eyes. Amazing. You know, and you're just going, huh? What? Where do I, who, who am I? You know? Wow. So I met her when I was six or seven. She lived with us for about a year. Wow. 
That's okay. Okay, so let's get back to the 80s. (laughs) Okay. So now, 80s art world, New York. I mean, you know, AIDS devastated it. I mean, there were so many things going on. It felt like maybe that was the beginning of, like, many scenes starting to emerge. Yeah. Would you say accurately? Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of pressure to belong to the right scene, and I kind of knew right away that that was not going to work for me. Hmm. So there was, and it was really. So what were the scenes? Come on. So there's the abstract expression. I mean, there's the uh, neo-expressionist scenes. I knew Eric uh, a little bit, but we soon would have a falling out. They were connected a little bit to the Leon Gala, Nancy Sparrow scene, but also separate. There was the painterly realist Jane Freilicker, Alice Katz scene, but Alice would be friends, say, with David Sally, but. So there's that scene. There's the, still the remnants of the color field scene. Right. And they weren't mixing with anybody as far as I could tell. And even further back, there was still remnants of the abstract expressionist second generation. So I knew Mike Goldberg. I knew Norman Bloom. I knew Joan Mitchell. So they were, I mean, they didn't all live in New York, but they had a kind of right. scene. Right. And then there's, there was the scene of the conceptual artists. I remember certain artists would go and name yelling at me and saying, well, painting's dead. What the fuck's up with you? <laughs> okay, stupid, you know. And, and, <laughs> and it's a lot of that going uh, on. People obsessed with the death of, right? Yeah. And, it's like, and, do you think that's over a little bit? I mean, do you think people are tired of this, like people saying the death of this, the end of this? I don't know. What do you think? Is I hope done? so. You know, yeah. I lived through the part, so no one in the art world that talks about the death of painting ever seems to want to talk about Norman Mailer talking about the death of the novel. Right. Right? Right, that's interesting, yeah. Or Truman Capote. Yeah. Right. Oh, what can we do after Faulkner, death of the novel? And then someone named Garcia Marquez publishes, you know, a book, and they go, oh, let's just drop that subject. (laughs) (laughs) But the art world had never seemed to have gone away. No, it's like... I mean, I keep hearing, you know what I mean? Like, occasionally... Oh, the end of this. And you're like, no, it's not the end. I mean, come on, you know, grow up. I don't know. That's my take. I, just, I wanted to hear your take on it. Like, no, what? I think it, everything changes. It doesn't die. I mean, yeah. so, for instance, uh, I mean, I just wrote about it. This Japanese artist in uh, Christine Lorello's gallery uses a 19th century print technique that Hokusai uses but makes abstract prints mm-hmm. or David Reed figuring out how to create volume in a different way. If a technique is forgotten but doesn't die and someone makes it alive again, it shows you the medium's still alive. Right, 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 right. right. And the other thing is that Tom Laskowski and I talked about this a lot because he, he and I both love movies, is how do you take a genre where everything is known, like the Western mm-hmm. or the detective thriller or the horror film, and push it down the road like five more inches or just right. a little bit. That's what's going on. I mean, but we're used to this thing of, you know, a giant change, stylistic, this and that. Is it marketing? Like, it is, is it marketing? You know, it's it like, I just, I just wonder because it feels like it's, but you know, I mean, books have marketing too, but they don't seem to be as obsessed with these endos no. in the same way, you know? Yeah. So it's also about the, well, books, you don't spend, Fifty thousand dollars for a book, and then wait ten years, and it 
right. get five million. Right, you right, know. right, 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 right. Different. It's a different ballpark. It's harder to be free so, as an artist. So all the artists you mentioned are white, at least in the 80s. Now, what was going on with artists who weren't white? Jack Witten. Yes. Like Jack Witten didn't have a gallery. He showed a Stuart Harrod. I mean, you wrote a great piece about him a couple of months ago on Hyperallergic Weekend. And I've quoted that to other people and it blows their mind, right? Like the fact that someone like Jack Witten, who in, in the early 70s was getting a lot of attention. And then right. all of a sudden he just sort of disappeared right. from this mainstream attention. Right. So what was going on, John? Well, I don't know exactly. I don't know if I have the answer, but okay. the art world just Mel Edwards shows the barbed wire pieces in the Whitney doesn't get a gallery. Right. I just wrote about this Peter Williams, a wonderful painter I like, has paintings in the Whitney Biennial 2002. Doesn't get a New York gallery. No. Just ignore it. So you feel like that's that was it. It was like if you couldn't be picked, a curator does the job, mm -hmm. but the gallery can't make money off that, ignores the person. I think that still goes on in some way. Absolutely. But I mean, I'm just, I guess in the 80s, it just seems like the color barrier was. Oh, it was really big. It's really big. Oh, it was so, big. And, but it always perplexes me because, you know, in my own research in like female abstract expressionists and stuff, one of the things, and we talk about the galleries you're going to, so many of the gallerists are women, but for some reason they're not showing women. Was there a similar thing with artists of color? Like, I mean, I guess I'm trying to understand where the system broke down that didn't allow these artists to still be part of the mainstream conversation. I think black artists had to be collected by African-American collectors. There's probably not a collector base. I think that was part of it. Got it. I think that's not the only, but I mean, Jack was really like a big deal and suddenly, and artists all knew him. You know, oh, every okay. artist, you know, various people that I knew, knew him and that's how I got to meet him. And then did you know about this party he had? No. This is Tell a us. big deal. This, this is like where I got another part of my education. Every New Year's Day, he would make Southern food, black eyed peas for good luck, barbecue, for like a hundred people mm -hmm. and been invited to his place on Lisbonard Street. He had this whole building. Yep. I met the entire black art world there. I met Al Loving. I met all sorts of people. Hedy Jones. I remember talking to Hedy yeah. Jones, who's married to yeah. Baraka. I mean, yeah. I was just like talking to her there. And she's like, yeah, well, I work in the prison, you know, post on the prison program. I thought, these people are like so dedicated, you know? Yeah. It was just this great. And I just would... I just talked to people. I didn't know anybody. And somehow I got invited, and then Jack would invite me every year. There's not a whole lot of people that weren't black there, but there was, it was not a segregated party. Right. And I was just like, figure out, I'm getting history here. I'm mm. learning about this art world. So I, And then I met Mel Edwards at another time and spent a lot of time with him and Jane Cortez. I learned a lot about... Anna Mendieta, who's their close friend. So I just got this other art world. And if, if, and kind of in the poetry world, there was a kind of mainstream poetry world. And then there was like other schools or other groups, right. the Black Mountain, the New York School. And you saw I automatically was used to this hierarchy. Got it. The hierarchy in New York seems based purely on money. Right. Right? And right. those who want to play that game. Right. There are people who are Smoke very, and mirrors. Yeah, there are people who are very 
successful and make a lot of money in the art world, but they don't try to act like I'm the top dog, right? Right. And think of all artists who gave their money away and artists who keep it all, you know? Wow. That's that's a lot of that stuff that's as right. well, right? And how about some of the other artists, like, you know, Asian-American artists, like Ruth Asawa? You know, I mean, were these, like, were they They were invisible. Of, totally? Yeah. I so. never heard of Ruth Asawa in the whole time. Kenzo mm-hmm. Okada I heard of. A few artists, and a lot of it had to do with, like, looking through magazines. Noguchi? Was Noguchi part of the conversation? Yeah, no. No, not at all. Not really. Really? No, he was seen as an isolated figure. He makes nice lamps, and uh, he lives off in Long Island City. So even in New York, a figure like him was just sort of So do you know about this piece I wrote about Wilfredo Lum? Oh, tell me. So this this caused a lot of trouble. So oh, I'm, we I'm like real, trouble I'm, I'm here. I'm really proud of like this, this piece. Okay. I'm really proud of this piece. Tell us, John. It's Barry Schwaski's the editor of uh, arts, and I, he's like one of. I really love Barry. I tell him I want to write a piece on Wilfredo Lawn and on the placement of the jungle in MoMA, mm-hmm. and he goes, "Do it," and I do it. So when I was a kid, at some point, maybe thirteen or fourteen. Two names I learned were Fredo Lam and Noguchi. When I come to New York, I'm trying to figure out who these people are, like learn more right. years later. So Fredo Lam is African, Cuban, and Chinese. Mm-hmm. And his painting is in the Whitney, in the MoMA by the coat room. Right. So my piece is called Please Wait by the Coat Room. <laughs> I do remember this now. Okay, And I write the whole piece about how he's misread because William Rubin said he's the first surrealist to use ethnic sources, cutting him off from his own biography. Wow. Right? And talks about why he's minor, he paints on paper, he's only a a phoebe, you know, he's only a follower of Picasso. And I kind of, I read through everything ever written on him and went, wow. no, this is all wrong. And I'm going to restate this about why he belongs upstairs and blah, 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 blah. And how he's misread by a, quote, colorless reading, mm. rejection of race. And I publish it. And that day, MoMA took the painting down and put it in the basement. That was their response. What? Yeah. And it stayed there for a long time. That's petty. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I was like, wow. Hey, Gary called me up and said, you know, that they just took the painting off the wall and took it away. I went, uh, that's not what I wanted to have happen. <laughs> wow. That's petty. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Ugh. Okay, that's insightful. So, but then I met a lot of people. I met Lowry Sims. I met all these people. Who's brilliant. I, Lowry yeah. is brilliant. So I just, in fact, wrote an essay for a museum in Buenos Aires on two women, uh, Alejandra Sieber, who's Argentinian, mm-hmm. and Lita Contunda, who's Brazilian, who both came up in the 80s. And it's the only reason I got to write it, I think, is that this woman, Gabriela Rangel, mm-hmm. went from New York to Buenos Aires, and she said, I remember your piece. I know your piece on 
you know, yeah. that's how she met me, and that's, that's right. how we became friends. So right. then, in a way, when I wrote that piece, I identified myself, right? Right. And then a lot of people who were not part of the white mainstream art world said, hey, John, talk to us. So I ended up doing Wilfredo Alam's catalog, Raisonne. Like, mm -hmm. said, you know, I met the widow, I met the son. I was like, I went to Paris, I got to see things, and so on. And the other thing is, like, being in New York, I really learned, like, there's art going on. I remember when I was writing about Jim Nutton, people say, why are you writing about him? Right. You know? Well, that's one thing I notice, even as an editor here, it's like, the things people choose to write about, there's so much aspirational aspects they want to be associated with them. They don't like trust their own opinion, but then they want to be like seen within that frame. Right. There's a lot of that going on. Right. So that's, I guess that's always been the case, or right. at least for the last couple of decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's you want to, I mean, America, well, it's probably everywhere. It's like you want to feel like you belong. Right. 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 I mean, it's the big pressure to belong. And I, I kind of, Realize, I mean, of course I want to belong, but then the other part of me says, it's not going to happen, John. Just <laughs> go your own way. And then I think the other thing is I would wake up thinking, oh, God, you know, I've said the wrong thing. And over and over I tell myself, the worst thing you can do is be wrong. That's not murder, you know. And then I, you know, egotistically think, yeah, but if you write it really, really well, they'll remember it anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I try to, you know, comfort myself that way, you know. Well, that's the spirit. I love that. So now how are you supporting yourself all this time? Oh, uh, I was living so cheaply. So it was well, possible to do Yeah, that I mean, there yeah. was times, I mean, I got $50 a review. I worked in a bookstore. I taught as a kind of adjunct, mm -hmm. but my rent often was went from $75 a month when I first got to New Oof. York or 150 It slowly went up, and I slowly had to get better jobs. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I was kind of naive. I thought, you know, I'm a poet. I should really just live like a poet. You know, mm -hmm. don't worry about money. Try and find the cheapest living situation you can. Yeah, I mean, I didn't take care of my health. I remember going to dental clinics, you know. Right. And things like the like, NYU death, dental yeah, clinic. Yeah, I just kind of going to doctors in, in sort of some weird way. But I just didn't care about money that much. I didn't need, my expenses amounted to eating, drinking beer, and buying books. And that's it, you know. Right. And I thought, right. if I can have these three things, I'll be happy. Totally. <laughs> totally. I get it. So now come to the 90s. There was the big crash that happened. Was it as devastating to the art community as it sounds like anecdotally, I've heard? Like in terms of there was a lot of money, the art world was sort of vibrant, seemed to be in the center of everything, and then all of a sudden, boom. Well, the strange thing is I still get hired to write catalogs all through the 90s. Huh. So I didn't feel it in the same Got way. It. Got it. And I had no investment in it in some sense of it. It's just people would call me up and say, would you write this catalog? And I would get right. more offers than I would take. Mm -hmm. And I only wanted to write about the people I wanted to write about. But a lot, some of the catalogs, a lot, were from Europe mm -hmm. or somewhere outside New York City. But, yeah, all through the 90s, I never felt like, oh, no one's calling me up. 
Totally. And did New York feel, I mean, more of an island than even now? Like, I mean, people talk about sort of New York being the center of the art world. And I mean, it certainly was, it seems like in terms of commerce, it certainly was. But what did that feel like? And how did that shift and change? Because, you know, in 90s, we talk about sort of like the explosion of the multicultural or, you know, well, the plurality. Well, two things happened in the 90s. I left New York for one year mm -hmm. and taught in the Asian American Studies Department in Berkeley. And wow. that blew my mind for many, many reasons. Okay. It's the first time. Let's talk about that. Uh, it's the first time I'm surrounded by Asians. Wow. Right? I've been teaching in colleges all over, you know, in New York, but this is a total. And I was invited out there. And there were so many fewer Asians in New York at that yeah, time, right? And, yeah. And here I am in New York, in Berkeley, teaching Asian American literature and. Except for the person who brought me out there, most of the faculty wouldn't talk to me because I was not an essentialist. Oh. Oh. Tell, talk about that a little bit. Essentialist is yeah. like this yeah, a kind yeah, of, yeah. you have this basic identity as an Asian American and it has to do. Right. So my first creative writing class, I'm teaching creative writing, I said, these are the following words you cannot use in a poem for the first month of this class. Chinaman, laundry, chops. I just list all, and I said, right. let's see if we can write a poem not using these words. Wow. And, and the class is about 40, about 15 people got up and walked out. Then I read a poem by Frank O'Hare that said, uh, I'm feeling all, I forget, something it's like it's very gay what he says, mm -hmm. but it's like slipped into this line. And after the class, three kids come up to me, three young men, all dressed in sports jackets. I'm like, wow, this is interesting. They were all gay. Oh, wow. And they all said, well, you know, and I did not know this at the time. They said, you know, the Chinese Asian community is fairly homophobic. I said, oh, I did not know this. And he said, but we want to be in your class because it's clear you're not homophobic because you read all this, you know, stuff with gay mm -hmm. language in it. So that was interesting. So that's mm -hmm. like, I'm getting an education. And at one point in the class, I said, okay, in the creative writing assignment, I said, all the men have to write from the point of view of a woman but not fall into the tropes of how a woman would see a man mm -hmm. and all and reverse it. And then I gave them pictures, postcards, and I said, you have to identify with this person or that person. And I remember one of my students stood up and said, I'm a cross-dresser. I'm going to have no problem with this. <laughs> so it's really great. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, is this class is getting open and interesting, you know, and I'm learning about these kids. And then the other thing I did with them was every weekend I would go out with like 10 or 12 of them for lunch, and I made them take me to every different kind of Asian restaurant in Berkeley. Like, is there a Japanese, Korean, yep. Tibetan, Chinese, Malaysian? Right. You pick. You tell us where to meet. It was great. And we just talked. Because I felt like, in a way, they were educating me. Right. I wasn't educating them. So what's this about the faculty and the essentialism? So they just thought, I mean, were you being too hybrid for them? I mean, yeah, like, what it exactly. was. Yeah, exactly. I was being too hybrid. You weren't, like, sitting there and talking about the, a tea ceremony or something? Right. I mean, is that was the yeah, issue? Yeah, and that yeah. the... the Chinese writing or Asian American writing had to be about identity. Got it. And I and I, I 
So the students asked So me, even in the 90s. Yeah, so the students asked me to give the graduation speech for the mm -hmm. Asian American class. And I talked about how I couldn't speak for anybody. I said, I'm born in Lynn, Massachusetts. I don't think anybody in this room was born in Lynn, so I can't speak for you. My father was half English and half Chinese, so I don't know how many of you are biracial. Mm -hmm. So I can only speak for those of you who are biracial. And I kind of listed all these things that would eliminate why I could speak for them. Mm -hmm. And I said, but because I can't speak for you, I can speak to you. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my graduation speech. The students loved it. I was like photographed with lots of kids and blah, blah, blah. None of the faculty would shake my hand or talk to me wow. after that. None of them. Oof. They were really, in, and I was trying, and I was being funny. I was not, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that could have also been a problem too, right? You know, hu humor <laughs> and academia don't always land. No, well. they no, don't. No. And you know, I mean, so here I am. I'm the age of most of the parents of the kids that are my students. Got it. And they can't figure out how I ended up the way I did. <laughs> right? They're, I mean, they would literally <laughs> ask me this. They're like, my father says I have to go to law school. I have to be a doctor. I, you know, the classic immigrant right, Chinese. Right. And you are the same age as my father. And look at you, you know, you're practically a hippie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so in Berkeley, you said, so one was that. What was the second? There's, you said there was something else. Oh, I went, went to Berlin okay. off and on okay. through the mid-90s. So I saw the art world. So in Berkeley, I met Bruce Conner. Mm -hmm. I met Chess, artists that I idolized, but I had never was thought I would meet. And I got to hang out with them. So then I get deeper into how many other traditions are there. Right, right, because Berkeley is seen as the you know David Park, Wayne Tebow, Richard Diebenkorn. Figurative, yeah, and there's yeah. this other group, right? right and right. I knew it existed because of poetry and this and that, but then I'm like in it because I'm hanging out with these people. I, I love that poetry really sort of like hipped you to all these sort of like this <laughs> fractured kind right, of right. like scene, which I totally makes sense. But I never even thought of that. Sorry, go ahead. So there's that, and then I ended up in Berlin with a man named Bill Barrett. We were hired to do something, do a uh, book together, and I got to meet the Berlin German art world mm -hmm. through meeting meeting a man named Stefan Weidler, and it was great. And then, of course, it just corroborated what I already knew. The art world's everywhere. Right. And they're going along, and they're not all looking at New York, and New York is arrogant to think they're all looking at it. You know, why did you realize that before a lot of other people did? I mean, I'm sure other people, of course, have, but I mean, a lot of people in that period didn't realize that, it seems. Well, so there was an artist. So when I was writing for Art in America, I was going to all these galleries and I went, stumbled into this gallery. I remember it was like near Aquavella, but it was in the basement downstairs. It was mm -hmm. in, and it was a guy named Giulio. Turcato, an Italian post-war abstract artist who evidently Clementi and other people liked. And I wrote about him. I thought the show was really beautiful. Mm -hmm. I researched them. A few months later, his wife calls me up and says, I want you to go to Italy because I want you to write about him for a show in Italy. Hmm. And I, I know I met him in New York. And so he was a little bit 
uh, kind of losing it, but his mm-hmm. wife was the assistant director to John Huston for all the films that he made in Italy. Mm-hmm. And totally amazing, you know. I think she's done in a wheelchair, but like tough as nails and smart wow. as nails. I go there. One of the people that owns his work is Sai Twombly's brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. I go to his house. I see Twombly's that I've never seen that probably have never been shown. And he has this amazing collection. He's like one of those collectors that's all leaning against the wall. He's got so many works. <laughs> right. You know? And yeah. he shows. And I realize, like, we, there's this whole other history. Like, you just right. kind of know. And the more you look, the more you go, that history has nothing to do with New York. Or that history is, right. is, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that was kind of by coincidence of writing about someone that no one cared about. That was in the basement of this tiny gallery. Who would later show it's Baroni, right? You know, and but at that point, the gallery is probably you know three times bigger than this room. And I didn't. I'm trying to see everything, and right. whatever I'm seeing, I think I don't know. And his work at that point, it changed. It had some kind of medium that made mm-hmm. it change. Is it like Mary Course? You know, I mean, right. it's already. But this is in the '80s and blah blah blah. So. I kind of would go anywhere, lay in there, mm-hmm. and figure out what's going on. Listen. Me, listen. listen. Yeah. yeah. And if I met an artist, I'd go, who do you talk to? What artist do you totally. like? You I, don't, I don't trust a writer who doesn't listen well. Yeah, yeah, same you know? here. Yeah. It's like, I think that's where it's really key. Yeah, yeah. So now, what year were you in Berkeley? 94, 95, I And think. then Berlin right after? Yeah, around the same around time, 96, yeah. And then New York drew you back. It did. I could never go away. Why? I don't know, because when I was in Berkeley, they said there was a job where you didn't get tenure, but if you were a writer, they would hire you and you could stay longer. So there are two things that were going to happen. So one is a man named James Breslin, who's writing a biography of Rothko died. And he had this job that was both in the English department and the art history department. And they thought, maybe you could take this job. Or there's this other job of a writer Mm -hmm. that could, you know, uh, be hired as a writer, poet, teach creative writing. And I said, I'll think about it. Got in my car, drove back to New York, got to 14th Street in August where it really stunk and said, boy, I'm happy to be back here. And I decided to stay and wow. not go back. Partly because wow. the art world is more interesting. I thought, I love the artists I've met in, in Berkeley, mm-hmm. but they're all older than I am. I didn't meet younger artists. So the new energy you felt yeah. was still coming. There was still From a New lot York, of New York. Yeah. So what was it like? Okay, so you come back, first impressions back. Had things changed? I mean, we're talking, this is Giuliani, right? This is Giuliani's New York. This was when he was mayor. It did change because I stopped writing for Art Forum. <laughs> I just, I just yeah. pulled out of the art world. I said, I'm not interested oh, anymore. okay. I taught mm-hmm. in art schools, mm-hmm. but I was kind of, I wouldn't say cynical, but I was a little bit like, uh, I don't know what's going on. Why? So where, where was that coming from? 
I think literally I didn't know what was going on, okay. and I didn't want to act like an authority. And I also right. felt burnt out from writing for Art mm -hmm. Forum. Like, mm -hmm. ah, I got nothing to say. Why well, say it? You right. know, right, maybe right. I need a little space to kind of walk around and think about what's going on. And I didn't go back till I started writing for the Brooklyn Reel. I kind wow. of occasionally, I did catalogs. I kind of, I got depressed about the art world, to be honest. But I kept looking. I kept thinking about it. I kept walking around and going to galleries. I wrote about a few people, mostly catalogs. But a part of me was just like, and I didn't want to write for art magazines anymore. I mean, I think partly I didn't want to write for art forum because I thought it was too much about art galleries. Right. Because there was two things I wanted to do. One was to write about Joan Brown, mm -hmm. and I wanted to write about her swimming around Alcatraz and talk about that and relate it to the abstract heroic tradition. And I remember I couldn't convince any editor. I was like, but she's not having a show, and it's Joan Brown. I'm like, then she dies. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I didn't get to say what I wanted while she was alive. Why should I keep doing this, you know? And there'd be artists that I'd bring up that I'd want to write about, and they'd look at me like I was talking about an alien from Mars, right. you know? Right. Right. Like, my taste is so far off the mark, you know? And I was like, uh, okay. Then you got back into writing about art was it at the rail, which was what, 2005? Four? Yeah. Yeah, two, around 2004. Four or five, yeah, so four. Why? Like, what brought you back in? What did you feel like you had to say or you wanted to say or just even explore? Oh, there are artists that I liked, like Chris Martin, that I wrote about. few people, I said I'll do it occasionally. Mm -hmm. Then it just got, I got in deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. First of all, I thought the, the review section when I first got there was sloppily run and full of mistakes, and I told Thong that he should improve it, and then somehow I get handed the job of improving it. <laughs> uh, and then I just got into it. I just suddenly, I was hooked again, and I took it really seriously. But what excited you about the art world then? Like, what was exciting? Because, you know, you have to find something that really sort of, like, lights the fire. Oh, I just thought there were a lot of artists that were under the radar that were really ought to get attention. Just to, my underdog mentality kicked in big time. So, you know, I wrote about various people. I started interviewing. And also I feel like there's certain people, they get written about a certain way and no one ever wants to think about them another way. So Very I just true. started Very interviewing true. people that who's were so I've known Helmut Federle for many years and many of the people I interviewed I knew for many years. Catherine Murphy, various mm -hmm. Thomas I knew them for a long time. So I thought, you know what? They're kinda known and they're kinda not known. They're not stars. They're right. artists. My little pet theory, now talking to you, I wonder, because, you know, that period was also when the art fair became such a big thing. Right. And certain artists were taking up so much oxygen in the room. Right. And the artists you were writing about were not those artists. Right. <laughs> so, is it right to assume there was a little bit in opposition to that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Knowing you a little bit, I had a sense <laughs> there was something there about that. Yes. Because, I mean, when you saw the art fair show up in the scale they did... 
what was your first reaction? Like, were you like, holy shit, this sucks? Or was it like, what the hell is going on? Or uh, So I think the first art fair I went to was in Chicago. And I actually went with the David Ross and a woman who was then giving away money to artists, whose name I now forget. And the first thing that struck me about the art fair was if someone was in five galleries or more, they were both popular and doomed. That was what I thought. Like overexposure... Wow. Everybody wants them, but within a few years, they'll be forgotten. So the artists I saw on that one were Steve McKenna mm -hmm. and Sandro Kia. Oh, wow. And that was in the 80s in the art fair that the peers. And then I found it a little horrifying because the woman I was with, clearly everybody wanted to talk to her because she was a, a multimillionaire giving away... <laughs> up to 200000 a year, and I was the person who was helping give it away, but they didn't know that. They just thought I was the Chinese houseboy with her. Who knows? Aww. They just kind of ignored me, but right. they would stop her and buttonhole. There's the invisibility part. Of yeah, the yeah, thing, they'd buttonhole her and just hand out. I just watched just bullshit flowing out of people, you know? Totally. You know, I was like, oh, I don't want to be part of this. So I stopped going to art fears. I now go to them. Because you do see things you would not see. True. There Especially is from galleries and places you don't travel to. Right. Absolutely. So I like that. But I also find them a little horrifying. Yeah. You know, like, because you can't really see 8,000 works of art in a day. I mean, when I go to the Met, I don't try to see the whole museum. I just try to see one. That's right. World. That's right. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of that. And it's a kind of... It reduces all art to merchandise. That's right. Which is also depressing. Totally. I mean, I've seen works that I totally love, but it's like in a booth that I'm just like, oh, this is depressing. And there are all these people walking around taking selfies. And it's just like, right. this is a kind of reduction of art, right? And it kind of... Caricature. Dis almost. Yeah. yeah. This, it's a basic disrespect of it in some level. So now, one of the things about the gallery world in that period that I think kind of maybe consolidated into this image was the cold gallery space, very minimal, you know, front desk uh, gallery people who don't look at you in the eye. And yeah, like, they're all beautiful. And you wonder, why are you on the pages of Vogue? Why are you working <laughs> at this gallery? So now, am I right to assume that was the era where that sort of consolidated into that image? Yeah. And do you have any sense of why? Like, what was going on there? Is it just because we work in a luxury commodity industry? Well, or, I, I mean, at least part of us do. I right. mean, I, I hate to, like, have the galleries represent the whole art world. Right, Do you right. know? But, like, what was your view? I think it it just made them look more efficient mm -hmm. and business-like. I mean, Betty Cunningham used to have a gallery above Fernelli's, which she called the bowling alley. It was personal. <laughs> right. You know, after a while... I go in a gallery now and I want images, and these people are so cold to me. Right. And it's like, they don't know who I am. Okay, yeah. I find I'm not going to get right. hung up about it. But it's like, oh, they'd be you know busy on their cell phone, and you'd lean over and say, oh, excuse me. And they'd look up, yes, can we help you? I and know. I hate that. I need to get JPEGs. Uh, you have to write this number, I'll give you the card. And then they'll go, what's this publication it's for? Uh, Hyperallergic Weekend. Oh, okay. And then yeah. they go back to the, and you just think, what, why are you here? That's right. 
And what are you communicating? Right. Do you know? Right. It's like, it's funny. It's like some people have all asked. It's like, oh, I'm sure when you go in a gallery, people treat you really well. I was like, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. I was like, there is nobody who says that. I've talked to collectors that feel the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it makes me wonder, what system have we created where everyone feels like this? I don't know. It's pretty depressing. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, it's depressing. I mean, I remember years ago, I did one article that didn't come out in Vanity Fair, but I had to deliver it to the editor. And uh, I got there and they said, oh, the mailroom is that way. Because wow. I wasn't dressed properly. Right. And I said, yeah. no, no, I'm the writer. And I remember the person looking at me like, that's, you're not the writer. You have the right <laughs> class identifier. You're right. You and know? I feel like the same thing happens. I, like right. every now and then when I walk into like certain gallery, and there are certain staff you feel like they're trained. Like you cannot be friendly to anyone that comes in here, no matter who they are. And you go in and you just go, really? This is like human contact, you know? I said, do I have the coronavirus? I mean, come on, you know, you're looking yeah. at me and you can't even say hello in a kind of human way. And I go, okay, you know. I'm starting to think it might also just be like deep insecurity that gets that gets nurtured in this field. You know, it's like we're a luxury field, or at least that aspect is very luxury based. And luxury is really based on insecurity. Oh, yeah. Do you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's like manifesting this insecurity. So sometimes, I, nowadays, before I used to like get hurt when people would do that. Now I'm like, wow, they must be really insecure. <laughs> they you know? are really. And that, and that makes me feel better. Sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's always true, but I feel like it's like they must be super insecure that yeah. they don't want to talk to me. Yeah, because at yeah. Castelli in the 80s, everybody was actually fairly nice, and you felt like that was the way it was supposed to be. Right. And a lot, and then it really did change, as you say, where everybody's really cold. But I remember talking to the people at Castelli, like, oh, I need this, I need that. They'd be very friendly. And that went up to a certain point. I mean, actually, at Gagosian uptown, I asked someone, a question, and he was incredibly friendly and helped me out and told me this and that. Wow, you just blew my mind. <laughs> no, it's true. And then, but in, <laughs> and it may be because he, my wife said, ah, it's because he knew who you were. But there's other galleries. That doesn't always help sometimes. Right. <laughs> but there's other galleries that will go and mention. I go in and ask them something. That's like, what do you want to use the bathroom? It's not for you. You know, it's like, right, what the right, heck? Right, right, right. You know, so writing in the early aughts, in the aughts, in the 21st century, what was that like in terms of how did you see the art world change, you know? And what was kind of being rewarded? I mean, have you seen positive developments in your opinion? And what are some of those? Uh, and even now into the teens. I mean, I guess we can talk about it more in a broad stroke. Well, I like the fact that there was a kind of painting that people are looking at, at least somewhat, if not, you know, Tom Skelsky, Joanne Greenbaum, mm -hmm. Chris Martin. So I really like that. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that some of those people didn't socialize mm -hmm. in order to become famous. Someone will remain unnamed. I saw socialize all the time, and I thought that was not part of what the art world should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's I like that. I didn't mm -hmm. care about the stars, you know. Yep. Like I figure stars have their own little 
satellites falling around. <laughs> I don't need to join the satellite club. Right, right, right. Some people took themselves a little too seriously for me. Mm-hmm. Like uh, that's recently two people it's happened with. Suddenly, like I didn't write about them in the right way. Oh, and I thought, oh boy, what world do you live in? Right. Did you say, well, you didn't paint in the right way? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, one person stopped talking to me because I mentioned someone else in the review that he didn't like. I mean, what kind of control does the person have to have? You know, like how, talking about insecurity. Yeah. You know, and he wrote. Well, who knows? It could have also been some incident that they don't want to share. Who knows? People have like complicated histories, I guess. No, no. It's, he had never met this person. Oh, okay. It was Got a, it. It was okay. Purely, I was being too generous. Yeah, yeah, it was purely a painter whose <laughs> name couldn't be mentioned in the same. And he literally, this person literally <laughs> said to me, my enemies will remember this forever. I said, good luck. <laughs> What planet are you from? I don't think your enemies are going to remember a damn thing about what I said, you know? <laughs> so, so it's kind of delusional, yeah, right? Yeah, you know? yeah, totally. Well, you know, one of the things that you write so eloquently about, I mean, many things, but one is painting. Right. Specifically. Now, what's that? what is it about painting that still ignites your imagination to write? Like, what is it about the medium? I mean, so many other people sort of, like, have turned their back on it. And, I mean, you go to biennials now, <coughs> and thankfully painting is a little, like, being shown again. But for a while, biennials, it's Not like you could... No painting No at all. painting. It was actually kind of farcical because the galleries were full of painting. Right. The fairs were full of painting. Right. The biennials, it was all conceptual heavy, right. super heavy, non, you know, whatever you want to call it, thing-based you believed in painting. Like, yeah, I always have. That. Why? Because it's being ambiguous and you don't know what it's about and really interesting painting. There's days I do wake up and go, I'm out of my mind. Why am I writing about this medium? Mm-hmm. But I go back and look at it. It makes me think about stuff. I can't stop thinking about it. I mean, I, every museum I go to, I go look at paintings, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. Caravaggio, Vermeer, some minor Dutch still life painter. And I think, what is it that mm. keeps pulling me back? I don't have an answer, but I feel like the really interesting thing about painting is that people still believe you can do something with it. Right. And also, I really and like... And all around the world. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not even like, yeah, you know, yeah. one place. It's like it's become a universal yeah, yeah. embraced. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I went to China and spent like a week with Lu Xiaodong. He was like a committed realist painter. Mm-hmm. And I like the discussion about painting, the arguments about it, that it's still lively in that way. You mm-hmm. can't paint this way, and then someone comes along and does it. You can't. Mm-hmm. You can only do it this way, and someone rejects that. And there's a lot of that in the poetry world. You can't write a love poem because that's oppressive. You can't right. do this. You can't do that. The love poems are still written. Yeah, and I yeah. just think, okay, if you can't do it, how would you do it, right? The minute right. someone says you can't do it, you have to go, well, how would you do it? With that political consciousness of that, you can't do it. So why do you think biennials and stuff rejected painting for so long? I mean, I think now, I mean, eh, yes and no, because I think I still go to some shows that feel very much like painting as an afterthought, do you know? And People not... are afraid. Afraid of what? Of being wrong. Since painting has been pronounced dead, you don't right. want to be the one that shows painting. Right. right. Everybody knows it's not conceptually 
as intelligent as other kinds of art. It requires that someone does it by hand when we know that everything can be fabricated. Or, you know, I mean, think about it. And I don't mean, I mean, I like Donald Judd, so I'm not, but fabrication became something else. Mm -hmm. It became a kind of entrepreneur capitalism. It mirrored the collector, I think, right. in some ways. Yeah. So it's a collector who doesn't get his hands dirty, buys art that's you know made by someone who doesn't get his hands dirty. That's right. And then you get the painter who's like, you know, dumb as a painter is like, right. is, you know, old uh, saying, yeah. right? And actually, some of the painters I know are some of the most intelligent people I know. So I mean, and what does dumb mean anyway, right? You know, yeah. was Jane, was uh, you know, Bill Trailer dumb? I mean, mm-hmm. let's talk about what dumb means and where does it come from? I mean, at one point I talked about, well, you know, there there are only black outsider artists at this moment. How many black people could go to an art school in America at that moment? You know, like right. what's the relationship, right? So right. I th- think also through painting and looking at it, you do see. Something about culture. Mm. And I'm interested in that, you know. And I also probably have a soft spot for art that's not didactic. Right. You know, because as a being didactic means you feel like you know more than your viewer mm. or audience. And I obviously political art and this and that is complicated, like what political art is didactic and what political art isn't didactic, right? right? And what is what's being told? What are you being told? And what don't you know? And what makes you feel uneasy? And what makes you feel like uh, you're just being lectured to? Right. And I'm interested in art that makes me feel uneasy. You know, like why do I feel uneasy in front of this? Or mm-hmm. or can political art? I mean, I just wrote about Peter Williams. I think political art can also be funny. Right. right. You know, what? how does humor pull you in even as you're going, oh, my God, what do I have to think about now, you know? So I think I'm interested in all of that. I'm just also interested in, I think if you work alone in your room, so to speak, that there's something really anarchic about your behavior. It's antisocial, even if it's yeah, for the right. greater yeah. good. And yeah. I really like the antisocial anarchic side. Charles Baudelaire... You know, Arthur Rambo. Let's go back to that moment in literature. And I think those were my, were my heroes when I was a kid. And I certainly haven't stopped loving them. Well, the painter kind of mimics that too, right? Right. Or, or is their own manifestation yeah, of that. Yeah, exactly. So you you feel a kindred spirit. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And Absolutely. I mean, pa- painters, I, in my opinion, so many painters I know, that they synthesize the world better than most people. Yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. it's, it's so incredible how they can synthesize it all together. Okay, so we've gone Brooklyn Rail. After that, you actually started Hyperallergic Weekend with a, with a small group of editors. And what was it like going from writing in print to writing online? Oh, I loved it. I Why? Um, print comes out and the show might already be over. Yeah. One. Two, the deal I made with you mm-hmm. is that I could write about anybody I wanted. Right. Whether they had a gallery or not, because mm-hmm. uh, I didn't want to be commercial. And That's the right. reason I left the reel was the re- the editor, the publisher of The Real was only interested in people 
that had galleries, A. B, he didn't want anything critical. He said, I, no negative reviews. And I did not want to be bound to those two things. Right. I think the reason I first left Art Forum was partly that. I think I said, no, bring the more negative. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you did say something <laughs> like that. And I had gotten... I, I knew you could handle it. I mean, it's not like... it's. Like, I would never say that to a new writer because they always go off the rails. <laughs> right, and right. you're just like, oh, gosh. <laughs> it's well, like, also, I don't want to clean up your mess. <laughs> I was also in trouble with the rail because I had written this rather scathingly sarcastic piece about Jerry Saltz. Right, right, right. And actually, uh, a friend of mine read the review years later after this whole, well, it hasn't really blown over because he's still annoyed, <laughs> uh, and read it and said, but you didn't really write about him. He wrote about his writing. Yeah. I.e. was critical of his writing, you know. So anyway. Well, this is this is the... He's, you know, world, world we're in where sometimes the person and the art, yeah, yeah. people can't differentiate, right? Yeah. You know, and that's, it is what it is. Yeah, you know? and, and I don't regret that I did it, but I was really amazed at the publisher's reaction. He kept saying things to me like, how can I look him in the eye? And I'm like, really? Is this what it's about? You know, and then I think his other remark was... Um, something along that line and i just said you know oh i said you're supposed to defend me whether you <laughs> agree with me or not i'm your writer if you can't defend me i can't work for you right sure you know because if someone writes for, i mean people have emailed me after someone's written something in hyperallergic and it's like been yelling at me right. you know and i was like He's my writer or she's my writer. Yeah. I do not tell them what to think. That's right. And if I agree with them or disagree with them, it's none of your business. That's right. That's right. So how do you think writing online changed your writing or the way you saw it? Did it at all? Because I've been really interested in like how the medium changes. Oh, I think it changed my writing. How? I think in uh, for the rail, the paragraphs are much longer. Right. And I felt like you had to concentrate more. Mm-hmm. So everything had the, the paragraphs got shorter. And I felt like you really had to talk about the visual you were seeing and connect it to the bigger picture. You couldn't just get straight to the bigger picture. You couldn't theorize. Mm -hmm. I liked... So wait, the online was the one where you couldn't theorize? Yeah, yeah or okay. I didn't want to. Gotcha, I mean, gotcha. I mean, was, I was sort of against it. Yep. But now I feel yep, like, yep. okay, I'll just deal with the right. visuals. Right. And then... Oddly, it made me, I think, I don't know if this is true, but I felt like it became more conversational. I felt like right. I was talking to somebody. Right. You know? And your responses were probably a lot faster, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, people calling you the same day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> some of them are quite annoyed with me. Yeah. I mean, we're, and hopefully some of them very happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think as I knew in the real, but I became more aware of it because it be, because I wrote more for hyperallergic is you have a voice that you could start to argue for mm. or a position. And I felt like you do have a position, John. It's not totally clear you're working it out as you argue it. So I then began to think, okay, what are you going to write about? Mm. Who are you going to write about? I mean, part of it is accident. You go yep. somewhere and totally. see something. And I want to be open in that way. 
I don't want it all to be like it has to be only on this street where Zwarner is, or right. you know what I mean? So there's a lot of that. And now I have galleries calling me up or emailing me, and some of them I go, okay, I'll go. Even though I don't know what's there, something slightly You're intriguing. Still open. You're still open. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's go find out, you know, let's take a look. And so I'll go to that gallery. And I don't do it all the time, but I, I don't want to become predictable about sure, it. Sure. But there is a feeling like, okay, John, you've looked at this email three times in the image. Think about it. Right. And then go. And then I might go. You know, and if I don't, I write the name down in the notebook. Okay, you didn't go this time. Next time this name comes up, go. So in that way, I think I'm still open. And I feel like I want to stay that way. I mean, so Rudy Burkhart once said this to me, walking down the street, and he says, if you don't know people younger than you, you're dead. Oh, wow. I'm like, I'm not that old. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like 40, right. 45 right, or right, something. Right, right, right. But I kind of know what he means. And yeah, I also I don't do only want to write about people I know. I want to write about people I've never met. I may never meet. I'm not going to try and meet them. That's right. You, you don't know. want to be their friend. No, no. You know, yeah. you probably won't recognize me if you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I really exactly. want that. I don't, I feel like it's... If you're only about your friendship, it's something's wrong with that. Right. You know? No, yeah, I agree. I always think there's something. Now, all this time, you're still a poet. Yeah, absolutely. And how's your poetry changed? Or how's it being informed? Or how is it informing your art writing? There is a connection. I can't, I can't say that I know exactly a one-to-one, -one, but I know, ah, maybe... So there's times when I have only art writing to do. Like I get up in the morning at 6, and this is my day. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to write till 6 at night and then get ready for dinner or something. And I might have 40 minutes in between, and I might just write any little dopey line that comes to my head. So in a way, I'm kind of becoming less judgmental of my work and seeing what piles up and where it goes. Hmm. And some of it might be good, and a lot of it I go, ugh, what am I doing? There's that. I'm willing to be slightly more topical than I used to be. I was kind of against that, but now I've written a lot of poems. Well, it also was the moment, but. Why'd you resist that? Because I thought I couldn't do it very well. You know, if I read Barack as my model or something, I'm just right. not that personality. So why try to be that personality? Right. But now I've written a lot of poems. I have a whole bunch of poems about the president. A lot of it is based on models that I used before. Like I would write a poem using only the words he uses in a speech. Wow. So it is him, but mm -hmm. it's not my intervention is to yep. do stuff. So I have a lot of those. I have a lot more poems about identity in a kind of straightforward way, but they're the kind of, like if I were to read these poems to the faculty at Berkeley, they'd probably all leave the room. So, because they use, and this probably comes from being online, I followed lots of threads about Chinese people and the racism towards them. Right. They're all over the place. Right. And particularly now with the, coronavirus absolutely you know? and so i kind of followed them and i try to write poems in the voice of the speaker oh wow so it's basically a racist rant 
often, or, but mm-hmm. I try to do stuff to it and take it and play with it so that you don't initially know the person's position. It reveals itself through the poem and mm-hmm. also that they're funny, mm-hmm. you know, which also makes people not want to deal with them. You know? Absolutely. Because, <laughs> right. He's being funny, and he's being funny about a white racist. This is not right, you know? And it's not <laughs> right, but that's why maybe we ought to look at I it. I love that. Yeah, you know? That. So I'm trying to do that, and I think it made me more conversational. I mm. think that's, like, if you read the poems of O'Hara and all the New York school, the big thing was how to get from the literary to the vernacular. Right. Right. And that's, you know, Williams made that happen, but Creeley, but how do you get to the vernacular? And I think for me, it was like a big struggle. Mm. And I think now it's starting to happen partly because of writing for hyperallergic and having to be vernacular in a way. Right. And how long have you been teaching at Rutgers? Since 2002. And what's that been like? Oh... Interesting. I just wrote a little thing about it. I have, when I was first hired, mm-hmm. the dean had to go over the faculty's recommendation because the faculty voted against me being hired. What? When I was hired, uh, two, three, four, five faculty, uh, one of them said the students should go on strike against me being hired. A lot of them said... So which department is this? This is the art department. Wow. That painting was dead, so therefore, why was I hired? Uh, I was Even in 2002? And that was that, yeah. Not only that, at one point I said uh, that I was a person of color, and they said, no, you're Asian, you're white. Someone said that to me at a faculty meeting. So you kind of see... explain that one to me? Uh, I think it's certain kind of leftist thinking. Right. Makes you so rigid and hateful. Right. Because you didn't win the war. Right. And also, you're not minority enough. Right. I'm not minority right. enough. Right. That's There's what I was being told. Going. Right, right, right. You're the model minority. You right. had it easy. Right, you know? right, right. You're not living in a certain disenfranchised way, yeah, yeah. according to that person. Yeah, no, I was the well-known critic, Margie Perloff, got all upset at me because even though I was Asian American, I went to Bard College, which costs money. So therefore, I must come from a h- upper middle class family. So wow. she never heard of student loans, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people wow. say really outrageous things, you they know. They really do. You know, and they you just really go, do. oh, can't. And, and the thing for me is, like, if you're going to be outrageous. But we're laughing, but you know that it also, like, it's stored inside. Oh, yeah. It's stored in our bodies. Right? Oh, yeah. The anger or the rage or the just, like, okay, just let it go. Yeah, yeah. Just There's moments where I'm, I'm about to explode right. and I think, oh, you could be misperceiving that person because of 35 right. or 50 years of bullshit right you know kind of step back john you know? right 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 right. you know so that took a long time to learn but wow so your start at rutgers wasn't really warm no it's gotten better but it's gotten better but i would say it was really the first so how do you go to work at a department like that you know because you're like god there's these five people that were total like terrible to you 
and you got to work with them really at the end of the day you're in the same department like yeah. how do you how do you function like that how do because i mean this is not so unique i've heard other scenarios where it's sort of like the animosity of departments to people that are not like them whatever however they define that i mean that's a lot and I would attribute part of like the problems of art departments to exactly that. It's like the, you know, literally decades of that kind of thing, you know? I decided but, to not let them win. It was that simple. Bravo, I, I, John. That's I, awesome. And I had a kid and I wanted to make sure my kid had a decent life. And I said, screw them. I'm just going to show up every, and I'm going to act as polite as possible. I sometimes didn't act so polite, Good. but I just <laughs> would show up. And I liked some of my students a lot. I thought, okay, you're talking to this guy, you're talking to this person. That's why you're going here, you know? And I just kept doing it. I mean, interestingly enough, I've hardly ever taught in an English department. So I already had alienated myself <laughs> in many, many ways. And so I thought, this is just further proof of my alienation, you know. Right, right. And I'm just going to stay here and keep showing up. And uh, the other reason is Tom Naskowski was there and Gary Keene and a few other people. And the dean really liked me. The dean is the guy who hired me. He kind of knew. He just said, "Look, you've done all the stuff. I know you're good mm -hmm. for the department." And eventually, most of the people, maybe all of them now, retired or quit or were bought out. You won. Yeah, I wanted to stay. You won, John. Yeah, yeah. Kudos to you. Yeah. That's that's epic. That's yeah. truly, truly epic. Yeah. So now, what is it like now? Oh, the, I mean, it's, it's very much more collegial. Stephen Westfall's there. It was, yeah. a, you know, Boehner, a number of people are nice. I don't have to like the people. Yeah, of course not. You know, yeah. or... You work say, with them. Yeah, you're not your they're, friends. They're collegial. Yeah. We're yeah. friendly. We don't stab each other in the back, as far totally. as I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly looks over his shoulder. But, and I respect what they do. I mean, I was in a number of hiring committees, and I wanted people who was work I respected and I really worked hard for that I didn't care if I liked the person or not I mean you know unless they were like just some horrible monstrous personality mm -hmm. but I thought they have a collegial personality they're doing this interesting body of work I may not run across the street to see that work but this is real right they should have a position right. in the exactly. school because I want my feeling is if you're in a school if you get like 10 faculty and they all have an interesting position and they're all respectful, it's great for the students. Right. They can, the student will negotiate his or her way through that. Each student's trying to figure out his or her position. We're not there to say, this is the one you should take, but these are the options that we have right now. There's actually more out there. And you can figure out your way if you're like right. self-driven. So how have students changed in your opinion in the last couple of decades? Has there been a change? Yeah, I think they're s savvier or smarter mm -hmm. in terms of the way, what they know. Because now research is the press of a button, right? Yep. I mean, it's kind of amazing. You don't That's have to like, leave your dorm room, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The, so the ones who really want to learn will learn. There are lots of people who still don't want to learn, but 
I've had grad students, I thought, wow, they've really done their homework for themselves, not yeah. for me. Right. And I think that's it. I think that's, you know, and like I met this painter, she's one, a grad student from Canada, mm -hmm. and her favorite painter is Florine Stedheimer. Wow. You know, it's like, go girl, you know? Yeah. And we just talked about it for a long time because I love Florine Stedheimer, and I was giving her every bit of information I knew, this book, that book, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, how did someone living in Montreal, and it, she told me how, but I think it's interesting. How was it? How was it? She's seeing shows? She came to New York a lot. Someone told her about. Wow. And, uh, shows she, matter. See, exhibitions she matter. She saw the yeah. four Florine Stedheimers in the Met, and they gotcha. were her favorite paintings. And then gotcha. when, so you feel like. That's really what looking's about, right? You walk through a museum and suddenly you turn the corner and go, and you don't know why your jaw drops at that moment and you have to find out. Well, I mean, that that's interesting to kind of to come a little full circle from the beginning of our conversation about Wilfred Alam, sort of like you talking about just even where it's shown and what right. it means. Right. Here's an example of exactly that. Right. Like if those were not hanging in the museum. Right. She would have never that's realized right. that's what she was interested in. Right. And if they weren't hung in the right context, right. even more importantly, right? right? If they were in the coat check room, right. she may yeah. have had a different perception. And then going back to Stedheimer, a woman named Leslie Bookbinder, a filmmaker who mm -hmm. did the film about the Harry Who, mm -hmm. calls me up, I think because of what I wrote and uh, hyperallergic about Florine and wanted to know if she should pursue making a movie about Florine Stedheim. Wow. Because she had been given the vision over and over that Florine Stedheimer was frivolous. Wow. And I said, well, beneath that frivolity is deadly serious. And I told her to go look at Asbury Park. I said, when's the first painting in American history show a mixed races at a beach? Right. That's right. right. 1920. Yeah. Wow. I said, how frivolous was this woman? You know, and I talked about lots of other yeah. things. And I talked about... Such at, a good point. You know, look at this, look at that. And I think she's going to do the movie. I hope so. That's you know, amazing. You know, so you feel like, okay, something's looked at one way, but really let's look at it another way. And maybe we got it all wrong, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. So now you talk about your love of film. Why? Like, what about film? Oh, no. Now what? you're going to get another weird childhood story. Good. Let's hear it. I, I'm here for it. So I grew up in Boston, across the street from uh, across the Boston Common. I grew up on Charles Street in Boston Common. Then you get into what would be the film movie theaters. Mm -hmm. My parents, when they needed a babysitter, would take me to a movie theater, pay the usher 10 cents, or a quarter and leave me there starting at seven. Wow. Adult movies only. They didn't want me around a lot of noisy, boisterous children. I saw all sorts of weird movies starting at the age of seven and fell in love with them. So when you say adult, you mean mature, like sort of like- Butterfield not, okay. 8. I gotcha. mean, a lot of Westerns. I saw many, 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 many Westerns. Wow. And my parents had not so much money. They were pretty poor. Yeah. So there were double features. There were second-run films. Not wow. so. So I think it was for the public's theater. You could see a double feature 
of a layout boats starring blah 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 and some other weird wow. war movie so <laughs> movies were your babysitter yeah and so what, what do you remember about those times like what was it about them did you feel did you sort of lose yourself in that world yeah i, mean, I think so that in reading i read a lot of books when i was a kid and i watched movies. my parents didn't have a television uh, oh okay so so movies no, were very like even probably more enthralling than yeah, if you had a tv yeah no tv yeah. we listened to the radio okay. I, so my parents listened to uh various radio programs every you know sunday we all hung out and listened to the radio did you think it was odd your parents would leave you at the movie theater looking back at, at age seven now i do <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea it was weird. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. when you're a kid yeah, growing yeah. up, you, you think this know. is normal. Totally. You know? totally. So they probably did that from the age of six or seven. I mean, really early till probably eight or nine. And then I was kind of on my own. Both my parents worked, so I was kind of on my own mm -hmm. a lot. Um, but when they wanted to watch over me, <laughs> when they wanted time for themselves on the weekend and they didn't want some seven-year-old kid bugging them they took me to the movie theaters wow and, I and actually, the ushers were nice to you yeah i mean the yeah. ushers got a, and i think what the usher was told as far as my mother would tell me was don't let a man sit next to him make sure no one bugs him gotcha gotcha right? yep yep so that was it, you know. No you had one, your bodyguard. Right. You were set. And they paid that person a quarter, which I guess was a lot of money then. And I guess none of so the So what year is this around? 56, 57, wow. okay. 58. Got it. And I went to movie. And I so I love big red velvet plush seats. Of course. And I and my parents, as I remember, never bought me popcorn. <laughs> Wow. I was allowed to have, like, I think a Coke and milk duds. That was my thing. That's and interesting. Just, and I would sit there and maybe Cracker Jacks, and I would have the whole afternoon. I would, they'd drop me off at two and one So it almost sounds like you enjoyed that. You oh, yeah, like, yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I'm an, oh, was an only child for many years. My brother was born, he's eight years younger than me. Mm -hmm. So up till, like, eight, mm -hmm. I had this weird, I lived in some weird dream world where the weekends is I'd be taken to the movies, left there. I'd buy books. So then there's a man who owned the drugstore who thought we didn't have money, which we didn't. He'd give me free comic books, and I just had to return them within two days, not damaged. Wow. And I just lived in this kind of, and everybody on the street knew who I was because both my parents worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother worked at one point in an all-night drugstore all night. So I really, like, wandered the streets, six, seven, eight, and every it was on Charles Street, which is a kind of interesting yeah. liberal street in Boston. And So you were a flanner of types. Yeah, yeah. A seven-year-old flanner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember my minister told me about the cross-dressers that harassed on the street. Because he knew that I wandered around. He yeah. says, you have to watch out. Those those men in dresses, I mean, those people wearing dresses are men. And I said, well, you're wearing a dress because he had a cassock on. <laughs> <laughs> he did not know what to make of me after <laughs> right, that. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow, okay. So what are kind of the films that, you, that excite your imagination now? Like, what do you gravitate towards? Oh, I watch a lot of... Uh, uh, Giazanke, a Chinese filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I watch a lot of uh, Korean films. Mm -hmm. 
because politically, I think Korea is such a divided, you know, yeah. screwed up situation. So and, they but making great art, you're right? So Parasite, you can't make a movie with a happy ending if you're right. Korean, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Just to be kind of dumb, you know. Oh yeah. So I watch a lot. I mean, I love that film, and I watch a lot of Korean films. I watch a lot of films coming out of Asia, mm-hmm. and like. Grad class, I'm trying to show one film from every continent or country because my students didn't know this. So I've been now showing Theodore Angelopoulos, this great Greek filmmaker, mm-hmm. to my students. Like one film, and then I'll show a film from Africa, I'll show a film from Russia. I just showed them a Chinese film, mm-hmm. I showed them a Latin American film. So I'm just trying to do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really, yeah, I grew up watching movies. And when I was in high school, I would go to movies by myself. Wow. Sometimes three times a week. Amazing. So that's where I discovered Anime Wong. And you're still like, not a TV person. No. No, I actually do get obsessed. Oh, okay, you do. Oh, okay. You go into I go into TV, binge watching. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I would, okay. Like, I watch a lot of European detective things, like one season, some murder oh, by it. the, there's one I'm watching now, Murder by the Lake. Gotcha, yep. And I think it's one season, seven episodes. I think I've watched five in two days. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so binge watcher. Yeah. That's what you are. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So now, the new Donald Judge show that just opened at MoMA, you did some of the audio. I did. Like So what was that like? And let's talk about Donald Judd. Because one of the things I love about you, John, is you teach me so much about work. Through your writing, through the times I've been able to talk to you. And Donald Judd, I have to say, as an artist, I don't like. You okay. know, or at least, but I, I want to, I want to learn from you and sort of understand. Okay. For you, where is it coming from? Like, why is Donald Judd interesting to you? He's totally rigorous. Mm. He's completely rigorous. He loves color, but he won't be expressive about it. Mm-hmm. He basically takes the form we're all familiar with. Now, John Ashby once said or suggested that Donald Judd came from Joseph Cornell's boxes, hmm. which I was telling Eve while we were standing in line. And she looked Eve's at your me, wife. Yeah. Yep. She looked at me like I came from Mars. <laughs> She's like, eh? I said, well, it's just something to think about. I said, I don't, I said, oh, I said, only a poet could have said that. Art historian, no proof doesn't exist. And I said, but maybe John has something just in suggesting it and just something to ponder, like why the box? The box is such a familiar object, but it's not what we think of as sculpture, right? Mm -hmm. And that's amazing. And then what does he do with it? He has light passing through it and some, the color, and he really... So things I discovered yesterday was his father was a carpenter and helped him make his first pieces. Hmm. And then, so obviously he knew about craft. Right. So also the rejection of that is interesting. Too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Suddenly yeah. it became more interesting that his father helped him make his first pieces. And then in one of them, he sticks a baking pan. It's just like such an odd gesture mm-hmm. to kind of do something to the surface. Instantly, as you see the two paintings in the front before you get into the gallery, he just doesn't really care about painting. He cares about color and a line or a form. And he figures out within a few years he's a sculptor. He's not really. I mean, really, I would like to have known what he did in the 50s because it starts in 61, 62. And by then he's already 33 years old. 
What was he doing when he was 26? We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. Why don't we know? I don't remember. Why is that? He must have not wanted no. Did he destroy I don't, work? That I don't know. Just, we don't know? No, okay. I'm going to write Ann Temkin, actually, and ask her. Because yeah. was he like a, just a, another bad second generation abbot? I was about to say, that's usually what it is, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, usually, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. They're like, you know what? This 10th Street touch thing, I don't know. <laughs> I'm out of here, you know. Forget it. So, and then Eve said this to me. We were talking about Stella and Judd. Mm -hmm. And she said, Stella's Judd stays rigorous his whole life. He's decisive. Vertical, horizontal. Everything is decisive. He never becomes decorative. Except with the the furniture. Yeah, furniture (laughs) is so austere. Oh, my God. But what about the other man? Did he become decorative at some point? What happened? I mean, yeah. the kind of rigor that, and this sense of color is so interesting. I just was like, I was blown away by that show. Mm-hmm. I only talked about the last room. Right, right, right. And that's when he discovers color another way. He goes to Switzerland. He sees a bookcase. He learns that color can be baked onto aluminum. Right. And it, he now has 150 colors. Right. And he just goes... Deep shit. (laughs) Totally, totally. Yeah, and I thought they're, I think they're really beautiful. I think they're they're not like anything else. And think of the other people he's associated with. Colonel Andre gets kind of caught in what he does. He has a signature thing. Right. Dan Flavin, kind of signature. Judd. He keeps moving around. He shifts. Yeah, right. and he and he even with the limit, you know, the progressions, the stacks, and this, he gets, he does stuff. And then, I mean, the other guys are frontal, or it's on the floor. With Judd, you have to look at the side, you have to look at the top. He really kind of makes you experience the whole thing. Well, they definitely have a different presence in the gallery than a photograph. Oh yeah. You know, that's definitely true, yeah. I think, that a lot of his contemporaries, yeah, yeah. do you know, that is sort of relies so much on the image. Yeah, and this show is really beautifully installed. It's very spacious. It gives all the work a lot of room, which I was really happy about. You don't want to see one stack next to another. None of that. It was not like production. Gotcha. You know? So are there any artists that when you see their work, you're, you just you have to write a poem or something like some somebody that whose work so fills you with like promise or inspiration. Are there any artists like that, that you keep going back to and you're always surprised how you get so much out of it? Jasper Johns. Ah, I've been looking at him since I got to New York. He had a show at Whitney in 75, I believe. Okay. And I went to get the free cigarettes given up by uh Philip Morris. I mean, mm-hmm. they had Marlboros, I believe, and you could get little packs. So I, my girlfriend and I went, and I was went there for the cigarettes. Everybody came down from upstairs. My pockets by then were stuffed with cigarettes. I went upstairs because then I didn't want to be around a whole bunch of, and I couldn't get out of there. I was just like, and I just kept going back and back and back. Wow. And it sort of has stayed that way ever since. The show in 83 at the Stelly in the Warehouse on Worcester Street, I think it was. I walked in and went, what's going on? I don't know what's going on. Hmm. He's like one of those people that everybody doesn't know what's going on, but they don't want to talk. They kind of just leave it at that. Right. Uh, well, his work in the 80s was kind of ignored largely. Yeah, I love that. Whole, work. I know. There was a whole like 
time where everyone just kept looking back, right? It was like, right, oh, the, the cross 60s, hatches. Right. Exactly. Uh, there's an artist I remember. He said, what are you looking at? And I said, Jasper Johnson. He slammed the table and yelled at me. He hasn't done anything since the 60s. What the fuck's wrong with you? Uh, oh, boy, I'm definitely going to go back and look. Right. If he makes him that angry, what's it all about, right? Yep. And um, and then I just started writing about him, and I decided I had to, I couldn't help. I think I wrote about him initially. My desire to write about him came from the fact that nothing said about him at all mirrored my experience of the work. Hmm. You know, and then I thought, well, wait a second. Is some, would someone set out to be that obscure and remote? Isn't all art about some kind of human contact? Mm. What is going on here? Why do we? Why is this all said in this way? And I just kept looking and thinking about it, thinking, ah, you know, I love people like John Ashby. I love lots of James Joyce. I love Samuel Beckett. Are they really trying to be obscure? Or is this come out of some necessity? Whatever that. Not. I'm not going to be a psychiatrist, but what is it? You know, what human thing makes this person do that thing? And then I just got obsessed. So I keep looking at his work, and he keeps kind of surprising me. I mean, a lot of artists surprised, yeah. but he's like one of the ones, right? Or Tom Naskowski, no two paintings alike. Right. God, you know, it's like. And you were like writing about Tom when when people were just not looking at his work. Yeah. And it's like, and I mean, thankfully, people look at his work a lot more now. Right. Right. And take right. it seriously, but right. you know, what what is that like? You know, as an art writer and as an art lover, you really need to like trust what you're seeing, right? Yeah. So many art writers don't do that. Right. I always say they look with their ears, right. you know, what everyone's talking about, right. rather than like, hey, I'm willing to, you know, plant my flag here right. and say this is important. How do you do that? How would you recommend to like younger writers? How do you do that and still feel centered in what you're doing and not feel ignored and you know, all these negative emotions that come with like doing something that's not popular? I think I'm lucky in the sense that I also have, I'm a poet, so I have something to hold on to when everything else is washing by me. Right. <laughs> They're saying, you're all wrong. I go, well, I still wrote this one poem. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's literally it. I think, uh, so I'm not dependent on being a critic as my identity, and I sometimes get really annoyed because that, I am identified that way. Mm-hmm. And I'm wary, like, oh, why is, you know, the classic New York, why is he being friendly to me? <laughs> what does this person want from me right. kind of thing? Right, you know? right. Um, so that, I think, is helpful. I just, I really like work that I don't understand right away. So when I first saw Tom Laskowski's work, I have to say, I was like, okay. I saw, I mean, I went to a couple of shows, and I just didn't care. And then suddenly one day I walked in and went, oh, wait a second, I'm all wrong. What's going on? Hmm. Uh, Catherine Murphy, I walked into her show, and I had seen earlier work, and I was completely smitten with it. I couldn't explain it. I'd say, but it's realist painting, John. You're not supposed to like realist painting. Yeah, but you really like this. Right. But you're not supposed to. Yeah, but you really like it. And so... 
the first chance I had, I walked in and saw a show at Lennon Weinberg, and I said, okay, figure it out by writing about it. Right. And that's how I met her. I didn't I didn't know her. Right. I had never met her before. Right. But I had been thinking about her work and going, you're not supposed to like it, but you like it. You know what I mean? The, yeah. the voice of you're not supposed to and me going, this is so fucking great. Totally. You know, and then I wrote about it. That was that. A lot of artists is like that. I just would go in. I didn't necessarily like it right away. And then I'd look at it again and go, oh, maybe I'm all wrong. So I think you have to give yourself that mm-hmm. thing of you don't have to like it right away. Mm-hmm. But if it engages you, go back. I mean, Richard Tuttle, when I first came to New York, so let's think, I've seen Jules Olitsky. I come to New York, and I see the John show, and then Richard Tuttle has a retrospective or a big show yeah. at the Whitney. I walked the in The infamous there. show. Yeah, I walked in there and went, what the hell is this? And I went back like 10 times. Wow. I thought, I don't know what this is. I'm only just going to keep coming back and looking at it. And then I was like in love. I have the original wow. Marsha Tucker catalog. I was like completely obsessed with it but i didn't know what he was up to i don't think i know what he's up to now but right you know i just felt like okay you don't know what's going on just keep looking at it what are some of the last i so we're wrapping up now okay and what do you think are some of the things that you've been thinking about and trying to figure out your whole career or your whole life in the arts that you're still wrestling with today are there any big themes how does one make meaning and what is meaning? Because there's a lot of packaged meaning, mm-hmm. you know, kind of easily delivered and consumed. So like Donald Judd, what's going on, right? What's mm-hmm. meaning? Is he really just a minimalist and that's all a word? You know, oh, he's a minimalist, you know. And in a way, what? how would you describe what meaning he gets at or what's mm-hmm. going on? I think those are really kind of simple, basic, but unanswerable questions. You know, what was Tom? Tom is a nature painter, say, and an abstract painter. What does that mean? Mm. And, you know, and that he stayed committed to the size. And and some people say, well, yeah, but he became successful. How can it still be political? Oh, I think it still is because a painting that size is like a rejection of a certain kind of gallery space, museum space, mm-hmm. right? How does, It's about an intimate relationship. How do you, what does that mean? And that each one is different. What is that about? And like, well, everyone says our experience is completely packaged and nothing new mm-hmm. happens. And he's saying, uh, you're wrong. Right. That's a pretty political statement. Right. It goes against everything being kind of passed up in society. Oh, there's nothing new. We have to climb Mount Everest if you want a new experience. No, maybe you just have to walk out your door, you know. Oh, I have to tell you one anecdote about him. Let's hear it. Didn't get in the I think it kinda got in the book. So he worked famously for Mad Magazine. What never what got What years was that? In the seventies, I think. Okay. For about eight years he was okay. their production manager. The most interesting thing is he went there a different way every day when he went to work. I think he only had to go to work three times a day. He, You mean three times a week? Three times a week. Yeah. 
He's so thorough, Tom, and so kind of organized, but in a way that's like beyond anything I know. He made a map, or he got a map, and he traced a different route each time he went, so he didn't repeat. He never, he tried never to go there the same way twice. So he'd say, take a subway three stops past where it was, and then figure out different ways to walk back. He knew how long it took to walk a block, in two minutes, mm-hmm. and he'd figure, and then he kept the map. So when I was writing my book about him, I said, I'd like to have the, a picture of the map to put in the book. Yeah. And he said, okay, yeah, that's fine. And then he changed his mind because he said the map was too messy and falling apart. But he kept the map because he hadn't worked in mad for like 15 years, and he still had the map. Think well, about that. What was that about? I think he was, I mean, he loved to walk. It's something that happened, yeah. started when he was a child with his father, yeah. who was, I believe, worked in the post office, but loved to walk, and also got him to read a lot. Was he a postal carrier? Is that what yeah, it is? So he was, was, walking was part yeah. of, yeah, wow, okay. <laughs> and he loved to walk. I mean, Tom loved to take walks, but he always wanted to find something new. I mean, he had a kind of voracious yeah. curiosity. Wow. And I think that... I think that's the other thing. What artists and poets am I interested in? I'm interested in ones that still have that enthusiasm of a child and this kind of voracious curiosity. You know, John Ashby coming and saying, oh, I discovered this new filmmaker, Guy Madden. You know, I was just like, oh, okay, let's go watch his, you know what I mean? I love Guy Madden. Yeah, so don't I. So there's like this kind of, they're always alert to the next, to something new, but something new that's not like society says, this is the latest thing. Because Guy Madden is not going to be written up about the New York Times on this fashion page, if you know what I mean. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you, John. This was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I think it's a great opportunity. I I hope people, you know, use this also as an opportunity to explore more of your work. Oh, thank you. You know, I think it's really important. And your your latest book, do you want to talk about? Well, my next book of poetry was called Genghis Chan on Drums. It'll come out in the fall of 2021 from Omnidon. And I have a selection of literary essays called Foreign Sounds or Sounds Foreign Mm -hmm. from Mad Hat Press. And I think that'll come out later this year. And if people are don't know your work and just hearing about it for the first time, what book or what writing or do you recommend be their first exposure to your work as a as a way to acclimate themselves? Depends on whether as a poet or a critic. Both. Uh, they probably should read my latest book of poems or my book of selected little book of reviews, The Wild Children of William Blake. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly forgot. Oh, Bijou in the Dark. Right. Be sure the dark is the poetry book poetry that was launched book. just last year. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much, Tom. Oh, you're Appreciate welcome. It. Thank you. That was great. A special thanks to Vincent Vallega for providing the music to this special interview. I'm Hadag Vartanian, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperlurgic. Thanks for listening and stay safe.